Green Future Growers, welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Hey, welcome back everybody to Part 2 of my awesome interview with Jennifer Maynard. So if you didn't hear Part 1, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one, but we managed to, um, keep on going. So thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. And Jackie, you know, if, if you want to continue the discussion, we can pick another day as well. I'd be happy to come back on and we can dig a little bit well, deeper. Let's just keep going because she hasn't logged into her zoom meeting. And I almost want to say she booked okay. at 11 two it's the same person like i'm st- kind of starting to realize so maybe she's just planning on coming at 11 okay. my time one o'clock your time anyway and if all of a sudden i get a okay. i forget what her name is heather's joined the zoom meeting real quick but uh i do want to like so my getting to the root of things uh if you see the questions goes do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and do? Um, gosh. Um, well, I'll tell you what my team hates. They hate weeding. <laughs> I will say for me, I would rather be outdoor weeding than in an office any day. Um, so I I don't mind weeding as much, but um, they hate weeding. So if, if I had to say collectively what my farm team hates, they hate weeding. I mean, I don't know. I think- How many people are on your farm team? We have about eight um, and we try really hard to, I, I think farmers are the, the least paid and appreciated uh, resource on the planet. <laughs> they, they work really hard and they get paid so little. So we pay very fair wages. We actually pay benefits for our farm team, which which- I don't blame farms for not doing that because they don't get big margins and we don't either, but it's been a huge mission of mine to make sure that farm team members and farmers are. So how are you doing that? Well, how are you able to do that as Congress is fighting to pay the $15 minimum wage as we speak? Like, how are you able to do that? I didn't have the benefit. So the, so the plus is I have a meal kit company that I designed to, be directly connected to the farm. So I don't have to market from the farm side, which is what's hard for a lot of farms. I got to grow the food. I got to plan. I got to grow it and I got to then market it. And if I pay, if I take it to a grocery store, they're going to take 65% of my margin. And my margin's already really, really tight. And there's a perception that organic food's really expensive. But if you look at, it is a lot more labor intensive. It's challenging, but the perception is that you know, organic farmers are just making a ton of money. Any of you on the line know that that's not true. Um, so what we're able to do is we we run a direct supply chain. We save about 35% um, or we reduce about 35% of the waste. So the average between the farm and the grocery store, the farm, whatever, they, they lose about 35%. We don't. So we have a lot less waste. Um, we're not selling to a retailer. We're selling to ourselves. So we don't have any margin cut. And we're directly consuming our produce into a meal kit. So that's kind of how we're able to do it. I really encourage anyone that has a bigger scale than their home garden, before they launch it, think about what your outlet is going to be and make sure that it's one that you can actually make ends meet. Because I've seen incredible farms 
that they have this incredible operation. They're so passionate about it. And then that piece isn't handled and they're like, oh, what do I do with all this now? So I started the farm first, but I already had the business plan running on the meal kit business. And, and that's really important for farms. And we do need more support in the U.S. And I hope it's coming soon. You know, farmers are the highest suicide rate of any profession in the U.S. Like that's insane to me. Um, we all started as farmers, 98% of the population in the U S started as farmers. Um, but now it's less than 1%. And, and so farmers are, in my opinion, heavily underpaid and so is the labor. So that's really important for us. And we try to really keep labor year round and we work on projects and some of the farm team members will work in the warehouse a little bit, um, on the meal kitting side in winter, just so we can keep them employed. Um, so it's, well, how does the meal kit thing work is it kind of like a csa it's kind of so we do a csa box we do offer a csa box we also offer fully curated meals so we have dietitians and chefs that um follow the longevity diet so our our meal program is based on the areas of the world where people live the longest healthiest lives like so sardinia italy people live about eight years longer on average than in the u.s so we we research, well, what is it about that region that's so different? One is they do regenerative farming. They do a lot of local produce and they have minimal processing of their ingredients. They don't have all these chemicals. Every single place we went, they're doing organic regenerative farming. That's, and that's why I believe that's truly key. And then, but the other thing is it's the way that they put the meals together. It's heavily plant-based. So it's mainly a plant-based diet. In some regions, a little bit of fish, but it's is that kind of like the Mediterranean diet? Is it's that a it? little different because the the longevity regions are all over the world. So the Mediterranean, you have Acaria, Greece, and you have Sardinia, Italy. So clearly, they are at the forefront of that, um, and they have at least, on average, across all of Italy, three years longer lifespan than in the U.S. Um, yet they spend way less on healthcare. So you know, it shows you that maybe food is a key part of that, and the way we grow our food. Um, but yeah, they, they eat a lot of olive oil. They eat heavily plant-based, what shocks a lot of people as well as most of their protein comes from legumes. If you look at other than certain ethnic groups in the U S that brought that from their homeland, um, we eat very little legumes, but it's probably one of the best foods for your gut microbiome. Um, so if anyone's looking at just quick tips to improve their nutrition, if you're not eating beans, every longevity region in the world consumes at least a half cup of beans a day. So it's a, it's a staple in their diet. And the fact that whether it's Costa Rica or Japan or Italy or Greece, all of them are consuming some sort of legume. It tells you like, there must be something to that. And we now know that that's a really good fuel for our gut microbiome. So it's what they grow. They also are not heavily processing their food and they don't have a lot of packaged goods. It's really fresh right from their farm. They're putting it into whole food dishes and then they're, they're consuming it. And that's what we do with our meal kit is we emulate that. And then we can get that out to people that don't have the time or they don't have the exposure to what that is. Cause there's so much misinformation out there on nutrition and, you know, the food industry unfortunately plays very severely on um, our primitive brain, our primitive brain really works against us as humans because we have all these refined sugars and processed grains and things like that, that you wouldn't have in nature. So our brain is telling us you're starving. You got to consume as much of this nutrient dense food as possible. Um, but in reality, it wasn't never, ever intended to do that. So by the time our natural mechanisms recognize that food in our body, we've already consumed the whole bag of potato chips or the whole like muffin. 
And that's why we're getting overweight and we get into these vicious cycles. I mean, I could talk about that all day of these cycles that we get into, you know, with insulin resistance and prediabetes with dopamine downregulation because of all the refined sugar. Um, it's turning off all of our triggers that tell us to stop eating or to eat something different. And even our connection to food. I love people that grow their own food because they they're so much more connected to it. And it's really important. Um, we've tricked our brain with our modern food industry because everything's artificially colored, artificially sweetened. Um, everything's kind of like manipulated. And so our brain, when we were under stress uh, naturally before all of this manipulation, your, your actual visual spectrum even changes. And that's because your body needs high phytonutrient foods. So it would go after superfoods naturally. I need these berries because they're really vibrant red and, and purple and things like that. And my body knew I needed that. If you look at like in the US Native American pop, they, they naturally had this incredible way of regenerating after winter and restoring their bodies and doing all with all these different superfoods and they naturally were drawn to them. But now like think about the color red, that used to be a trigger for the human body. And I'm not, there's also tricks to that. That's why certain plants are red because you're drawn to them and they may, might actually be poisoned, but there's also ways that your body would be like, this is way too bitter. It may not be good for me to eat, or this is really sweet. It's probably actually good for me. So the flavors, the smells, the colors used to attract us when we were under stress. Um, so these vibrant colors, actually, we used to go after now, you know, what do we associate red with red velvet food cake or red velvet cake <laughs> and, and these like, food dyed different things and our bodies tasteless tomatoes from the grocery store that like yeah yeah that are picked six weeks early and gassed on location have no value and yeah yeah so that's what our body's like confused like this actually isn't as good for me as i thought so now i don't know what red and and this smell actually is anymore so I love when people grow their food because like think of a tomato plant and I'm sure all of you have grown a tomato plant. Even when you touch the little filly that are on the, the side of the plant, you get that smell, which I love. Some people don't like it. I love the smell when you touch a tomato plant and you get that smell in your hands. Um, but it's already starting your pre-digestion. Like you're already starting to salivate. Your, all of your enzymes are starting to generate. So it's getting ready to digest that food when you have a tomato at the grocery store that was picked green and gassed on location just so it looks red and it's firm and you know it's not mature, it's not hit its nutrient profile or sugar profile that it's meant to have, you don't have that same connection with that food. Um, so food connectivity and having the least minimally processed food possible is really important for human health. And that's where that's what we try to focus on with our meal kit company is we use as, as minimal a processing as possible. So people are getting this whole plant forward diet into their bodies instead of getting constantly tricked by the food in our grocery stores. Um, you know, I, I still shop at the grocery store, but I rarely ever go down the aisles. Um, the whole thing about shopping the perimeter is typically very true um, to where I buy so few packaged things. And I've lived in Germany, I've lived in Switzerland and if you look at the grocery stores in comparison to, into the US, it's night and day, like eight, like 80% is fresh stuff that's not processed. And then they have one like tiny row that's packaged goods and it's really small. Um, and that's where, if you look at longevity, I think it's heavily connected to the food chain and, and how people consume their, their food. 
golden seeds, Jennifer, golden seeds. And when you look, so this is the interesting thing. So when season three started, I released this bonus episode with this guy from a thing called Bootstrap Farmer. And he Mm -hmm. was trying to tell, I was talking about, I connected with him because I was trying to, I'm talking, trying to talk my stepdaughter and starting a food truck with me. And he said, before you start a food truck, try this other business model. It's like a salad lunch club where, because it will reduce food waste, you get paid ahead of time because people like buy the subscription. And so I I started making these salads and canning jars because I always thought, you know, I the CSA model doesn't work for me as a customer because I never want to have to be somewhere. But if somebody brought me lunch at school and, you know, teachers are healthy and we love salads, like if somebody delivered salads to school, that would be great. And he's like, yeah, this is the great model for you. So the first thing I did was start to try to make salads and see how could I make a salad that lasts for five days. Like I haven't actually, but it has been life-changing for me to have these seven salads in my fridge that I put in these glass jars that look like your website though that food is like my dream food like I want to buy your food and eat your food (laughs) and like it is just like my dream food I can see and that's what these sound like I'm amazed like I am just learning that putting a salad in a canning jar is a game changer from putting a salad in plastic now that being said I'm buying the iceberg lettuce that i don't really like to eat because i can't imagine how the other salads are gonna work like the green leaf lettuce or i haven't tried spring bricks maybe it would i don't know they work well they they actually work you do have to like um incised lettuces i mean we can have a whole nother discussion about that on which lettuces hold up really well in packaging um, but I, I love that idea. So I will tell you, we donated a lot of meals to hospitals when COVID was really hitting New Jersey hard. We're still sending some even to Texas cause they're just, they're riddled right now as well. But New Jersey, we were right down the street. We actually delivered it direct to the hospitals and they were like, you know, we appreciate everyone's donating food, but it's all pizza and, and, you know, all these processed foods. So it's not, and we would be bringing these gourmet salads. And they said, literally, the only problem was there was fights between shifts because the one ship would consume all of the salads and then the other ship would come in and they're like, where are the salads? Wait, all um, right, so this is my but, other question. Like, what I haven't figured out is like, how do I do the salad dressing to go with the yeah, salad? It's got to be on the side. So you'd have to figure out some little container because as soon as you get the greens moist, it it definitely will break it down way, way, way faster. So that's kind of the tricky thing is figuring out, you know, do you put that in a little jar? And we make all of our salad dressings fresh from scratch because this is another thing that drives me crazy is if you go and look at the salad dressings in the grocery stores, I'm not saying there's not some good ones, but it's hard to find a really good one. They have high fructose And they're so expensive when you do. Yeah, they're expensive. They don't have the flavor. They have a lot of preservatives and and, and sugar. The sugar is what shocks a lot of people. Like 75% of the products, and this includes produce, everything in the grocery store have added sugar. We consume 153 pounds on average in the US of sugar a year. That's what 263% more than is recommended for human health. 
by known studies, we know even Dr. Longo, who we work with on the longevity diet, because he wrote it, not me. Um, he know we know that sugar activates our aging genes. It we know it starts breaking down our cells, yet it's ubiquitous everywhere. So um, we really try to take sugar. We don't we add a little bit of maple syrup here and there, um, but we don't put any refined sugars. And that's for me really important because it's sugar is a really big issue for us in the U.S. and we're addicted to it. it it's one of those cycles we get into with the dopamine downregulation that literally it plays against our, our primitive brain because we were never meant to eat refined sugar. It, it's a man-made substance. So it works against how our bodies were designed and we get into this extreme addiction cycle with it. And so anyway, if you make your own salad dressing, you can make it without all the sugars and it can still taste amazing. And that, that whole model. So when I lived in Switzerland, um, right down the street from my office was this salad shop and it was kind of like a really nice like subway type of thing with just gourmet salads that you could you could pick their signature ones or you could make your own salad the freshest ingredients all homemade salad dressings and it was i ate there almost every day because or if i didn't bring my own lunch and it was just so nice to know that i had that choice and and it tasted amazing and i'm like why is this not like all over the place in the US because it seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> if I had more money, I would have these restaurants all over the US because I mean that's what we're trying to do with our meal kit company, but also to know like, hey, this is right next door to me. I can just walk over and get it. Um, we try to do it by delivering it to your door so you at least know it's it's going to be there and you have your your salads for the week. And that's what a lot of people like. They just don't have to think about it. It is a lot of work to put assemble salads. But if you can do that in glass parts locally it is it's it is but it is a game changer well, it is it's yeah. like i am so Absolutely. much healthier because those salads are there in my for like even if i haven't figured out how to make this business model work for other people like well you could you could do it in the food truck too though it, it is been yeah. my scale can prove it <laughs> you is. know it's like such a game changer to and it is and and there's a lot of ways you can you can get it to a scalable level it's i'm not gonna say it's easy like it's it's uh the whole food system is built the opposite so it's still kind of fighting an uphill battle but it's all doable and i think the more we can start to create businesses that support that and support healthy eating versus everything else in the market i think it's really important and especially supporting farmers and and healthy farming models that pay people decent wages that can um, produce healthy food with all the chemicals. Like we have to start creating things like that or we're never gonna pivot. I mean, again, I've heard, um, I don't know if it was Drawdown or which book I read it in, but they said, you know, if we convert all electricity to the solar power, it'll still take us a hundred years to just start reversing climate change because that's how much carbon we need to sequester to just offset what we're, carbon we're creating, there's massive changes that have to be done. Whereas they said, if we just converted 30% of farms, we could within a few years start reversing climate change. Like that's mind blowing to me that we don't have strict policies already going after this and better funding. Cause you know, people ask me, well, if it's such a no brainer, if it works so well, why would more farms not convert over? I said, well, you got to understand farms to know why that's not the case. 
I said most farms that are large, not all of them, but mid-sized farms have been family owned and passed down generation to generation. And they're barely making ends meet. The average farm in the US is $2 million in debt. So if you look at that, they're very risk adverse for a reason. So are they going to try something totally new that they know for a fact that the first three years is going to be rocky and challenging until they hit, hit, hit equilibrium? So who's going to do that? They're already the highest suicide rate profession. So clearly they're under stress. They don't want to lose the family farm and they're getting no funding to support doing it the right way. So until big companies, um, food companies that that really care about their clients start supporting farms and start shifting this and and, and um, food policy starts to shift, the farms just aren't going to convert on their own. There's too much risk. And so the more consumers, like I tell consumers, you, you have more of a voice than anyone out there. Yeah. And if you start demanding these things, even asking, like people always say, well, it's not, what do I go talk to my produce manager? I was like, absolutely. If you start talking to your produce manager and say, hey, I noticed we don't have a big local farm food section. Like, why is that? Could you start sourcing more locally? Hey, do you have any regenerative farming? I literally, I do that. And so I'll go in and talk to the produce manager because I, I eat some very unique foods and they don't usually have some of these, these things. And if I don't grow them on the farm, I'll be like, hey, do you have this? Like, like Goya, like bitter melon or something. Uh, no but I can look. And then the next week they'll actually have it. I'm probably the only one buying it, but they listen. They listen a lot more than people realize because they want your business and they, they do care about it. And so I think the more consumers start asking for this, demanding it, asking questions, they will, they will get it. Even organic has shifted a lot in the last few years to where you see a lot of organic products in the grocery stores. And that's because consumers started asking for it and demanding it. It's still only 1% of farms, which I think is crazy. Dollars. But yeah. Well, I even noticed in Super One now, they shifted and they put the organic on where you walk in, where people naturally turn mm. and the, like they swapped sides. What drives me crazy is like the broccolis. He said that the only way they could get the cashiers to really recognize which was which is the organic broccoli has the long stem on it that you're probably going to cut off anyway. And then they sell the broccoli crowns of the other. And so I'm like, so the people are paying for organic are paying more for that extra part that they're going to have to cut off when they're yeah. already paying more of like, I was kind of like, mm, yeah, that's not fair. Why isn't it? But anyway, but they do like, I just asked my food store manager the other day, like, where's the tempeh? Like I'm going crazy. I can't find tempeh anywhere in my area all of a sudden i was like why aren't you carrying tempeh anymore he didn't have an answer for me but i bet he looked hoping i'm gonna go back yeah. and find it yeah because yeah. i asked but they do uh and listeners what's the what, one thing i want to say is that's why i'm so passionate about <laughs> get jm Fortier's small scale farmer is changing the world t-shirt for your local farmer person like show them because they are the people yeah. and then the other thing i don't know if you know who liz carlisle is but she got her phd and now she teaches sustainable ag at stanford um but she got her phd because she wrote the book the lentil underground which is all about exactly this and like one of the big problems with farmers is that the banks who, you know, the banks are saying, no, we're not going to let you take a chance on growing organically and doing this stuff. 
and they have to have the and the crop insurance people like yeah big oh my gosh. ag is a huge don't, yeah um, <laughs> don't even- no. Don't even get me started there because we're buying a farm right now. So we're, we're expanding our farms because my business model is region for region. I want local production for the local region. And it is mind boggling. Our first farm. So if I didn't have the 20 plus years of business experience that I had, and I feel for farmers because they're really in a bad shape or people that have a passion and they want to start a farm, it's really hard. And it makes no sense to me why we've set our system up this way. So get this. If I buy a farm that has a really nice house on it and I say, I'm just going to have a fancy lawn, I can get a conventional loan. The moment I say I'm going to grow crops on it, I cannot get a conventional loan and I have to come in with cash. Isn't well, that I'm insane? Isn't that insane? I'm going to release an Isn't interview that with this guy <laughs> who bought an orchard up in Vermont and he started 20 years ago with just a few fruit trees yeah. in his backyard. But he talks about that, that he was able to get some loan because he had to convince them that the orchard was a hobby. Yeah, yeah. To buy yep. it, to get the, so So, yeah, so literally, is, if you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to farm, because I feel like there's a really incredible movement right now of people that are really interested in farming or they started organic gardening and they're like, I want to do this for a living. I have friends that have left their corporate job like me and started farms and but it's hard it's if you don't have a big savings or a, an incredible business plan that they know is pretty much rock solid which is not easy they're like nope even the ag companies that are supposed to loan on farms they were like you don't have enough documented farm experience from commercial scale farming and you don't have a degree from an ag school um, so that didn't work and then i had to put a business plan together showing the revenue stream and then they gave us a loan but the fact that everything is kind of working against that model is just, it's dumbfounding to me because it it's never going to get us there. If we started unleashing mid-scale farms, which is what the U.S. was essentially, how we populated the entire U.S. is 40 and 100 acre farms that was gifted from the railroad. That's a whole nother story as well. But anyway, um, if you look at that and if we could revive that in the US, it would change our food model in a really positive way. You could then scalably do organic night like left and right pretty effortlessly. Well, I won't say that. That's <laughs> farming is never effortless, but I'm saying the business model could start to really roll out in a meaningful way. And um it's not. It it's really it's turned off to make it nearly impossible. And I think that's wrong. I think we need to change that. We're we're trying to work with policy writers to start changing that policy and changing those rules. Cause I think it's crazy that I can get a normal loan really easily. If I say I'm going to plant grass of a horrible monocrop <laughs> and well, it's not that horrible, but, um, or if I'm going to farm and produce food, healthy food for the population. And, and then they say, no, I, I just, I can't, I just can't accept that. It's just broken. It's wrong. So um, now that being said, I have heard about a lot of people that are able, like Daniel Mays talks about being able to buy his farm through a conservation farm trust they have up in Maine, where he was able to get half of his farm. Um, yeah, like a, like a grant, and that's that important. Did. So there are like some of those options, but I think those are they few are and far between. They are, they are. I think it's going to change. Um, and what an yeah. interesting way for you to go about it to get a conventional loan. 
Um, but yeah, it's just there's so many pieces and parts and things and how oh, you have just been a wealth of information. But I'm going to quickly go back to getting to the root of things. So if weeding was your least favorite, what would be your favorite activity to do in the garden? I love seed the the initial seeding and and growing things to a transplant scale. Um, I just love I I feel like every time a seed pops up, I'm like a little kid. I'm like, oh my gosh! And it's funny because we grow tens of thousands of seedlings, and so it doesn't matter. I'm still like a little kid with every oh look at the peppers are up. My team just laughs because they're like, oh my god, like why are you still excited about this? But I I think it's literally the most obvious like miracle of life like and I love even growing like microgreens and things like that because like in six days you can almost watch it growing you see these pea shoots pop up and and I love my kids to experience it because they're like oh look like I was just um testing some of our pumpkins and things like that that we did seed saving last year to make sure they were trying to figure out the germination rates and stuff like that so I grow them in these little trays just to make sure they germinate and even those I'm like, you know, I should probably just put them somewhere because it's not like I'm going to have them still by my farm, but I can't. I'm like, I got to find a pot and I'm going to keep these alive in my front room. (laughs) And so I just, that part is just my favorite part because it's just, it's like you pop the seed in, make sure you get your mix right. And suddenly you just have this incredible plant and you know, it's going to produce an incredible amount of food. And I just think that's incredible. So that's probably my favorite part, but I like a lot of it. I, like I said, I, it's funny cause I'll even, I'll be sick of being in the office. I'll drive over to the farm, which is only about five minutes away. I'll put like an earpiece in and even take my calls and I'll be weeding. And the team's like, are you at the farm? <laughs> I'll be like, yeah, I needed a break. And so it's just, <laughs> but I just love being outdoors. I love, I love our farm is like my happy place that yeah, there's birds everywhere. There's bumblebees that those things just make me really happy. So, but yeah, I, I don't really hate anything on the farm. Like I said, um, my farm team hates weeding and that's just cause it's the first two years we moved the farm over. We were still getting processes down. The intercropping wasn't kind of perfect timing of everything. Um, the cover cropping wasn't like fully in cycle, but every year it gets better. And that's, that's, what's key is, you know, people that are also on the front end of doing this, like be patient. It, it will start to balance itself out. But the first few years, there is frustration. There's, like I said, the pests unfortunately spike first because your soil doesn't have that immune system yet. And then you start to bring it into balance. And by the third year, it's just amazing. The change that you see each year, you see incredible change, but you just got to be patient mother nature always finds a way you just have to kind of I feel like we just need to get out of her way like we're just disrupting we're trying to control I think we just need to work symbiotically with mother nature like hey we get it like these are the things we need to do we're going to set up the right processes and then we're just going to get out of the way and let you do your work and that's kind of the approach we we try to take so don't get frustrated it's it can be frustrating but um it'll it'll get there it'll balance itself out well, I had a little third grader last year. Alex, this is a shout out to you if you're listening, who just totally reminds me of you. And he's someone to be a scientist and he loves to grow things and just 
he was just like you so that being said jennifer what's your favorite tool if you had to move and could only take one tool with you what could you not live without oh wow um hmm, that's a good question um i don't know probably a shovel even though we don't use shovels once things are going like i literally everyone laughs because my husband and i started our farm with just a shovel and and doing little raised beds and i really feel for me it's if i had to pick one tool it's the only tool because if i had just a starting point with a piece of property i would i would build those beds and that would be my starting point and i would just you know keep kind of ticking along with that so how big is your farm our farm's 40 acres i i didn't start the 40 acres we've scaled slowly and we've built one plot at a time but the first i don't know eight to ten rows we literally did by hand because we didn't have a tractor we didn't have anything we do have a tractor on the farm we use it now to cut the beds initially when we start a new plot um because we've scaled the farm and how big is a plot um our plots are about 120 rows basically three to 350 foot rows um and they're about three and a half foot rows uh, width wise and then we have maybe a foot and a half walking spaces um, between the rows. So once, so we do use the tractor to cut those beds. We use the tractor to transplant, but that's about it. Um, and and to move around wood mulch and stuff like that. But we don't we don't really do any other mechanization. Um, even like I said, our we put in cover crops that t- winter terminate mainly, so we don't have a roller crimper or any of that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a very um, like. Uh, I don't love bells and like even in my kitchen, everyone laughs because I live in an 1800 stone home. I live in this totally normal neighborhood and then you go down my drive and we have this old stone home. But I like um, simplicity and even like my kitchen, I have all these antique things that I use and I don't like gadgets because <laughs> if they're not really bringing a lot of value, I don't see the point of all the bells and whistles and stuff. Like it's got to be a killer tool. And we use some cool things on the farm, you know, some different weeding tools that just help a little bit but what I notice is my do you not have a flail mower that everybody keeps Mm-mm. talking about for not getting their cover crops down Mm-mm. no we we have um no we have well okay we, we do have a mower but um so I get yeah I guess we have a flail mower but we don't so far we don't um we don't do cover crops that we have to knock down because the peas and oats they just lay flat on their own and then like i said we literally transplant right into those beds um there's no we don't even mow those so the only reason we would ever need to mow is if it's going to go to seed you don't want your oat to go to seed if it goes to seed then you have to terminate it but we just make sure we get the timing right to where the peas can get peas that doesn't matter and then um we make sure the oats don't go to seed and then it just falls over on its own it creates this really nice like like I said almost like a plastic mulch layer and then we leaf over it and then we just punch into the ground with our transplanter and directly drop everything into the ground um so yeah we don't have a lot of tools I'm not saying that there's probably not some awesome tools out there um we use some little wire weeders and things like that hand tools but what I notice is my team always navigates to some of the most basic tools like even our our weeding tools they prefer just like a little I I don't even know the proper term it's like a little hook tool that they just it's a tiny little hand tool that you can just really quickly whip by and 
and uh, pop out weeds and stuff. Um, but we don't, we don't, because we don't use a lot of mechanization, we don't have, we have, we do broad fork with new rows for the first three years. So you do need to do certain things to transition. So your soil doesn't compact too much until that, again, that sponge is created. Once the sponge is created, you don't need the broad forks, but we do the first year broad fork. The second year we broad fork, usually by the third year, we're not broad forking those beds. But since we're always expanding new plots on the farm, because we don't have the full 40 acres, we have about half of it in production right now. We only expand when we need it because I don't want more maintenance than is necessary. We don't like to overproduce and waste crops. So we've really carefully expanded the farm. Um, this year we'll almost have probably, well, and we have five acres completely dedicated to pollinator habitat. So it's native, we're building up native prairie grasses and stuff like that. Um, so that'll never be crop production. Um, and then we have a little area that we have some rescued goats and chickens and stuff. Um, and we use that manure in our compost. But other than those areas, eventually most of the farm will be in production. And so this year we'll have probably about 75% in production. And then next year we'll, we should have all the plots in production. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very simple. I like the, the basic tools. I'm not saying I don't love the tractor to initially do the beds, but if I had to just pick one and I was starting a small farm, um, we just were out there and I mean, maybe I'm just crazy. But I like just working the soil really carefully and minimally impacting the soil. Um, so yeah, that's probably, that's probably mine. So what's the best advice you've ever received? For me, my personality type is I, I'm a very driven, like energetic person, but I, I do like to feel like I'm somewhat in control. And the best advice I got was just, if you're going to organic farm, you need to just let that go. And I fought it my first year. I'm like, how do I get this? Like that, that there's zero weeds and everything's like perfect rows and blah, blah. And, and the more I learned from it, the more I realized, you know, you have to be structured and there has to be a system in place that works, but you don't have to control every aspect. If you work with nature it's not about control. It's about balance. And so that was the best advice I ever got is get away from trying to control anything. You know, it's a typical human desire. And as soon as you let that go, things start coming to life. And so for me, that was a big transition in my mindset. Don't fight it and control it. Find a way to work with it, and the the sooner you learn that with organic farming, like even pest management, integrated pest management, as soon as you figure out how to how to prepare your farm and and get your crops and your soil and everything ready for defending themselves against those pests, it's so much easier than getting irritated that you have Mexican bean beetles attacking your beans and and your you know, pouring diatomaceous earth and, and your team's like, can't we just spray pyrethrin on these? Jeez. And I'm like, nope, we can't. <laughs> so, but you know, if, if you're just angry and you're fighting against it, it's not, you're not going to win that. So you just have to take a step back and go, okay, how does this process work? How does this cycle of Mexican bean beetles work? How do we get ready for this with the next plot we grow with beans to where we're not going to get hammered with this? And you just got to think through it. And again, you got to figure out how to work with nature, what things naturally will work with us to be successful so we don't get our bean crop wiped out. And knowing 
the longer you do it, it's, it's funny because if you, any local organic farmers that I talk to, the, some of them have been doing it for 30 years really successfully, but they're like, look, Jennifer, every year is a learning curve, even for us. Like you never fully get it. You just can't fight it. You gotta just kind of roll with it. And what I love about our farm is it's very diverse. We probably grow about 300 different crops. So like the conventional farmer next door, who's a sweetheart, he's like the nicest guy ever. He'll come over every once in a while and talk to us. And he's like, man, I wish I was just an organic farmer. I mean, I don't really, cause it's too much work. And you know, he's, he's like very much praises us for what we're doing. He's like, I could never do it. It's too hard. But he goes, I spent six grand on spraying my field this year. And I still lost the whole pumpkin crop to powdery mildew. And he looks at our farm. Our pumpkins are gorgeous. Like everything's growing like amazing. And he's like, I don't know what you guys are doing, but every farm around here got wiped out and your stuff looks fine. And I'm not saying we don't lose crops, but when you have 300 different varieties and you lose a few, you're not like dead in the water with your crop. And that's why crop insurance is challenging for organic farms because they're not going to insure 300 different crops. But you hedge your own bets anyway, because there's fewer crops that are going to be impacted by powdery mildew. And you have all this organic matter that's sucking in that moisture instead of it sitting on the surface. And so it starts regenerative farming, organic farming starts to work in your favor over time to where in three years, it's easier in my opinion than a conventional farm, but those first three years can be really painful. So, um, so, yeah. so I'm glad I'm organic because people don't look on the flip side of it. This guy lost his whole crop and he doesn't get reimbursed for all the chemicals he's played, sprayed that he just kept putting more and more and more assuming it would get better. And eventually he just lost the crop. So there are advantages as well. And the bank will give you the loan for the chemical. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, how about a favorite recipe? What do you like to eat or cook from the garden? Um, I love pestos. Um, I love, I mean, I just love fresh food. Um, so it's hard to pick one because that's people ask me all the time, which longevity region do you like the most? I love Japanese food. I spent a lot of time working in Japan and I just love Japanese food. But but my favorite is because I use a lot of my byproducts from the farm in it. So I don't do very conventional pesto, but like I do carrot top pesto. So everyone just throws their carrot tops away. I turn mine into pesto. So I try to always come up with recipes that we can use every single part of a plant. So I use all my beet greens. I pretty much use everything that is edible. Um, so I have, and maybe I can even send it to you. I have a carrot top pesto that I think is incredible. It does have basil, but instead of spinach, we use carrot tops and it's really delicious. Um, and I always like enjoy it even more knowing that, you know, that cause we have goats and stuff and they'll eat a lot of the byproducts and then it goes into compost eventually. But if I can also consume that, I, it's kind of a win-win there's much less waste. So um, that's one of my favorite cause I love pesto anyways. And because you can trick it with the carrot tops and get a really delicious pesto. And I even turn pestos into salad dressings and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, I make copious. It kind of mixes it up yeah. because like you can only eat so much basil pesto. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. And yeah, and when you have a, an abundance of some of these things, like I'll can it and and try to preserve it or at least have it in the refrigerator or give it away. And um, yeah, people are just blown away. Like I can eat the carrot tops. I was like, yeah, I mean, most people wouldn't outside of a sauce because they have kind of a unique flavor. It's not like you'd put them in a salad per se, but in pesto, they're great because there's different strong flavors in pesto anyway. So 
that's probably one of my favorites just because I think it's fun to use, you know, all of the products of the, of the produce that we grow. Um, I'm trying to think if there's... I want to say Robin Kelson shared a recipe for carrot top pesto. Cool. Uh, you know, I worked at this restaurant once where we made a sandwich with, um, we would mix just a tiny bit of pesto in with the mayonnaise and put it on there. And oh, yeah. that sandwich was so good. Yeah. Okay. Well, these are supposed to be fast questions. Anyway. <laughs> it's kind of like the lightning round. So, uh, how about, and we're at an hour and 42 minutes of my <laughs> second, my third interview is about to start and I've got to like take a break really quick, but we got just a couple more on question, I don't know, 12 or 13 or somewhere. How about a favorite internet resource? Where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Wow, that's that's a good one. Um, man, I'm all over the place there. I I mean, I have favorite books. I'm, I'm a little old school and I like to... Well, that's next. Yeah. So you can recommend a reading resource. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, let's oh wow I mean I search all over because I'm just always looking at different things I mean I'm gosh this is a tough one um I'm trying to think of what it's called um uh, I'll have to give it to you to put in the notes there's a really interesting website that I'm on all the time it's like commonwealth.com or something but it's all about you know, the stats across the globe of, you know, the U.S. spends the most on healthcare of any country in the world, the least on food. And it just gives you a really incredible perspective of the things that are broken that we need to really start to work on fixing. Um, and I like facts. I, I kind of like to see things in perspective because um, I feel like you can't really debate that. And so when people are like, you can't grow all the food and you can't do this, I'm like, well, look at the facts and you actually can. Um, but I like a lot. Oh, are you kidding? I'm such a data junkie. And I was telling my husband last night as I was like staring at the fire with my eyes closed because I spent all morning yesterday looking at like data and these business sites and like trying to like, I don't know. I just felt like I learned so much. And so I was like just going through this information. I'm like, this is like lizard measure the sim where you're like visioning and you're dreaming and you're like i'm like just because my eyes are closed doesn't mean i'm sitting here taking a nap yeah. like i'm like like trying to sort through how can i make this information i learned visually compelling to share because i'm like you i feel like we're not communicating right what we need to say like we're so stuck on this these yeah. debates yeah. are so yeah. stuck well, that's, on the wrong well, that's pieces what... like if people would understand medicare for all and healthcare for all like if we added in these nutrition pieces and exercise pieces you know as we move into this automated future like i heard this woman talking the other day about in five to ten years almost all jobs are going to be eliminated yeah. like the orchard guy I talked about, he's planting dwarf trees because so when his kids take over, he's like robots or drones are probably going to be picking the apples. But for drones to come in, the trees have to be separated a certain amount. You have to have these certain trees. And so I'm trying to pick and like this woman that was talking, she's like computers grow. They're going to be learning for it. Like the number of jobs are going to be cut down to so much and we need people to be able to enjoy life more yeah. we need to um think into the future 
but also like we should be living healthier lives we should be able to like have a better quality of life because of technology and embracing this technology to you know but I also like again I'm a data junkie and I'm also like kind of a communications I like to make things visual I have a a weird way of analyzing things and like yesterday like I feel like I'm getting more into economics the 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 last year I've spent more time kind of studying economics things and yeah and how these things piece together and it's so true what you're saying but I also think like a lot of what you're seeing today about the food and the nutrition piece, the exercise pieces, as people are working more remotely and they are working for like I told my mom, like, why am I so obese when I have this at my husband? Like, I haven't hardly did buy any produce this year. He grew like all of our potatoes. You know, I have more access to healthy organic food than most people yeah i am morbidly obese like literally i have to lose over 50 pounds just to get to like where i'm not obese i'm just a healthy level and why me of all people i do think because i do consume like i don't have diabetes i don't Mm -hmm. i my high cholesterol is a little my bad cholesterol is a little high but my good cholesterol is so high like I, I you know there's like this i don't know and what and why like he's skinny as a pole yeah. being home in the pandemic hasn't hurt him at all but we kind of eat basically 90 percent of the same food like what like but did you find the website while i was yeah. no <laughs> no but i but i but i figured i would just jump into books <laughs> because so I only because I spend so much time at work on a computer and I really love to be outside yes. and that's where I say I'm a little bit old school. I do listen to some audiobooks, but I love to just read. I'm I'm a geek in the sense that I like to still have my library. So I will send you that website because it's um it's it's really cool. I think it's cool. Yeah. But I will um or no worldcommonwealth.com. Anyway, I'll send it to you. It is just very fascinating because it's fact-based, um, just stats of the world. So it also gives you a perspective of how the U.S. is doing versus others, which, you know, don't get depressed by it. People are like, oh, that's so doom or gloom. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm an optimist. Like, we can change this. There's still time to change it. We just have to start now. We can't keep saying next year, next year. Um but it shows- and just debating over terminology that's outdated. Well, that's the thing. That's where that's where I just I found it interesting because I, I like that I've had this view of different industries and perspectives because like I've worked with hemophiliacs, like like I said, or or AIDS and HIV patients and even late stage cancer patients. And there's just certain things they need. And you know, I, I'd be in these discussions with herbal medicine people and it just became this bashing. And I was like, hold on a minute you don't ever think there's a world where all this can fit together. Can we just stop arguing that one is better than the other and say, look, there's a need for both, but we never find a balance. Like that's what we need. And even organic, like I'm trying, I'm always careful, like to not say my way is better than your way or something like that. Cause I'm like, look, we just need more organic. Like, I don't care if you use plastic, I choose not to, but Hey, if that allows you to transition your farm and be successful, go for it. It's better than the chemicals that you're probably going to spray. So, so go for it. Like we just got to support each other and we got to create communities that believe in this and bring it forward and don't fight over silly stuff. Like I have this thing with a lot of things like religion, different things. We focus so much on fighting over the little things and we don't progress the movement on what's really important. And so that's where to me, 
you know, and, and I, so, okay. <laughs> I know these are supposed to be short answers, so I'll get to the books, but, but anyway, I think we have to start opening our minds to other ways of doing it, but saying, Hey, like, let's try to not spray as many chemicals. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of ways to, to slice a cake. And so, um, let's focus on the commonality and how we can work together. And so I love the book Drawdown. It's one of my favorites because I think it gives really practical solutions to start reversing climate change. I love it. It's, it has like, it, it splits out every single thing independently that we can do. I think it's a hundred different things that we can do to reverse climate change. It's really cool. Um, it's not bashing any industry or anything. It's just saying, if we start doing these things, we can have amazing impact. And if you add up out of a hundred, I think there's like 35 that are around agriculture. So when he actually adds up agriculture, it's clearly the number one solution. Um, I love that book. I love anything by Brian Greene, um, The Elegant Universe, um, Light Falls, um, The Hidden Realities. It's, it's all about um, just to me, it puts things into perspective of like how the whole universe fits together. And I, I personally am able to connect it to growing food, all these different things. So, I mean, it's kind of, it's a little geeky, but I love that. He's just fascinating. And, and I think, um, you know, he explains it from a science side, all the different aspects of physics and this universal theory. And so I find that really fascinating. And, and then, um, Jared Diamond, there's an incredible book he wrote called Collapse. And what I, what I find really fascinating is it's about all of the ancient civilizations of humans. And essentially it shows that soil degradation has led to the collapse of every major civilization. And we're kind of heading down that path, but all the things we can do to start fixing it. And then I guess the last one I would say is uh, David, Montgomery, ugh, David Montgomery's book, Dirt, called Dirt. Um, also just, it's kind of a similar theme, just that, you know, we are heading down a path of more and more of the dust bowl, more desertification, and that if we start to regenerate our soil, we can dramatically start to impact the environment. And so I just, those books just continue to inspire me and make me realize that this passion, this this path is the right path and it's essential for us to survive as a civilization. Um, so yeah, between Brian Greene and those, those books and then Drawdown and then obviously the longevity diet. <laughs> um, when it comes to nutrition, I just, I'm a big believer. I constantly reference it even though it's the book that is behind everything in our meal kits. Um, it's also very factual and it breaks down the science of nutrition. So I, I like that side of it. And then I like the soil regeneration. And those are the books that I probably put the most, um, most of my time just sucking that information like a sponge because it's really fascinating and it gives you a different perspective. I have a million. And the drawdown books. book is Peter Even... Hawking. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then. And it's a collaboration book. So it's a collaboration book. So he, it's a lot of different authors, but yeah, he's kind of the one that pulled it all okay, together. Okay, here's my last question, the doozy. Uh, Jennifer, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally nationally or on a global scale not that you haven't been talking about this for like an hour <laughs> yeah 
I was going to say, probably the biggest thing for me is this challenge, this hurdle of acquiring farms. And I do think, you know, people need to learn and, and farm properly, but even if you look, most universities are, they're focusing still on conventional farming. So, um, like I said, the system just works against what I feel is needed to actually solve the environmental problem. And I personally believe we need smaller mid-scale farms all over the U.S. like we used to have. Um, so 50 to 100 acre farms that are, I think that's the sweet spot from a size of a farm. I think once you have these mega farms, 10,000 acres and stuff like that, I think it gets really challenging to do organic. I'm not saying it's impossible. You can do no-till. There's some incredible farms doing that, um, but it is really hard. And so, and I think there's enough people with passion and the desire to have these mid-scale farms, but they're really hard to get your hands on. And we're losing farmland at a million acres a year in the U.S. So, and it's mainly to desertification, but there's still a lot of land if we start to change this picture quickly that, that is accessible but most of it's going to development it is it's not to real estate development it's to both but if you really look the whole like western midwest everything even in new jersey if i look at a lot of farms in the like northeastern side of new jersey they can only grow soybeans they're they're so so depleted they can only grow soybeans now which is like almost like no input crop they can't even grow corn and so most of them are turning into like these e-commerce tractor businesses and stuff like that. So they still have this beautiful looking farm, but they're not growing anything. They still get the tax revenue because they'll maybe do it. And so good. it's happening a lot more than we realize through soil degradation and even desertification. So it's, it's a serious so issue. Yeah, it is also development. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so many things I could talk about. <laughs> uh, well, we're destroying we're destroying like there is like at the north end of flathead lake there's like this glacial yeah like some of the only yeah. topsoil left in montana at least especially in this western part my husband ever since i moved here has complained people should be yep. building their houses up against those rocky yeah. mountains yeah and we should yeah. be preserving and they are just i mean we are inundated with like I people know. are moving here because of covid the real estate market is okay <laughs> It's insane, but I gotta go because I have four minutes and like thank you thank you thank you for spending two hours with us listeners are gonna love this you just are so gracious and I want to talk to you again and like I want to write a book about you for high school kids or or little kids to for learn sure. like I hope we can stay in touch like my dream is to be a biographer and an author and your <laughs> life you. is fascinating well, it's been so, fun I could talk forever to you oh yeah. my gosh god bless and take care thank and you, Jackie oh. okay no Thank problem so bye much. i'm sorry i gotta go jennifer bye Hey listeners, are you wondering how you can grow your own healthy and nutritious food with confidence? Have you been frustrated as a gardener? Does the thought of weeding make your back ache? Have you tried to grow a garden before and found you can't even keep a plant alive? Does the cost of organic produce in the store make you cringe, but the thought of bugs in your garden make your skin crawl? Well, we have the answer for you. Freegardencourse.com. It is so easy. You enter your email. You will watch a video right there. You can get my Organic Oasis checklist, our Essential Tools checklist. It all shows up right on the thank you page. Freegardencourse.com.
Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening, and remember, grow local.